Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, and we are live from the Robin School with the Richmond Fed. That's right, our first live show in forever with Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin. We'll discuss the unprecedented shocks and monetary interventions of the COVID-19 pandemic, supply chains from toilet paper to pickles, mask mandates, the so-called great resignation and great reopening however interrupted, plus some of your listener questions. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of our kind host tonight, the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond, preparing students to be future leaders in a global business world by providing a dynamic learning community where real-world teaching practices, scholarship, and service are at the forefront of the curriculum. More at robbins.richmond.edu. And by Solomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Solomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SolomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and recommend our show. Joining me on stage for our first in-person Full Disclosure Live in forever is Tom Barkin, President of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. He serves as a voting member in 2021 on the Fed's FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee. The Richmond Fed's district covers the Carolinas, Virginia, D.C., most of West Virginia, and Maryland. Tom joined in 2018 after decades at the consulting firm McKinsey, where he was CFO and senior partner. Please help me welcome him. <laughs> Good, sir. I always start with this jump ball, whether I'm having a doctor, a public health person, a business person, a fiduciary on. To what extent in your career did you study 1918 as a kind of a business and economics of it? Uh, you know, until I got to the Fed, 1918 was the end of World War I. Uh, I will say when this COVID thing hit, I went back and read a bunch of books on 1918. Uh, there's a great one by John Barry, you know, talking about the, it's called The Great Influenza, which talks about what happened. And of course, you know, in that book, what you hear are the waves of COVID. So there was wave one, then it went down, and wave two, I'm not COVID, of influenza, wave three. And so that was pretty instructive because you could argue we've been through those three waves here. Hopefully we won't have a fourth and a fifth. I then went and bought a book about the 1920s because, of course, what happened after the great influenza was roaring the, the roaring 20s. And um, what's interesting is there was a little-known problem we had in 21-22, which the economy fell off the cliff at the end of it. And then it came back to the war in planes. And so you try to learn the lessons of the past so that you can try to steer so you don't have the same kind of issues. But it is interesting what parts of history we remember and what parts we don't. I remember I was watching ESPN or something. I don't know if it was March 20th of 2020. And then uh, they decided to cancel the season, the NBA, and my Lakers were number one, and I was livid about it. And then universities started left and right saying that we're going to go virtual, and the school messaged us and said we're going to go Zoom. And next thing you know, the next morning, it's, you know, interest rates completely plummet. There's a panic in markets. I think the market would tumble up to 30%. What happened behind the scenes in the kind of the war room, situation room at the Fed? So I shouldn't talk about my daughter calling and saying we had Please, to take her home from college. tell me everything, yeah. Well, we all went through the same experience, right? And in my case, my daughter called on Sunday and said, I think they're going to cancel college this week. And we said, shut up, you're being dramatic. We don't really know what's going on. And then on Wednesday, they cancel it. Now, being college students, I understand there was one really large Wednesday night party before the NBA oh, you know, canceled everything on Thursday. Super spreader event. On Friday, uh, Jake called around all the presidents and said, I think we're going to have to have a, a conversation here. And so instead of picking her up Saturday, my wife, God bless her, went and met her. And we had a weekend meeting uh, where we decided to take rates down to zero and do a pretty significant uh, bond buying program as well. And 
you know, I'll give Jay and others full credit uh, for sort of seeing what was going on. You may remember that uh, a week and a half earlier, um, March 3rd, I want to say, the Monday, Jay had come back from, uh, I guess, a conference in Switzerland. He'd called around again and said, I think we need to take rates down. So we had another, we'd had an emergency meeting that Monday night. I want to call it the third, but it was that week uh, where we took rates down 50 points. That was a surprise. And then, of course, you know, March 12th or 13th, whatever it was, the NBA shut down. And that weekend, you know, we sort of put all our cards in. What is the one stat, the one thing out there that you guys are saying, this is dead serious. This is not just another kind of SARS 2002-2003 vintage. Because I remember three, four years ago, Bill Gates, I don't know if it was a TED Talk or a presentation, said the one thing that keeps him up at night more than anything else is the pandemic. And it was still largely in the theoretical, in the realm of sci-fi. But when did you guys realize, I want to know behind the scenes, is it, a, is it the CDC or the HHS or some surgeon general saying, this is it? I don't think it was any of those. I think, if, But if you remember where we were, China had shut down. So China was shut down in January and February. And the question was not whether there was a pandemic going on in China. It was what was going to be the spread. And so, you know, we didn't have a lot of testing in that time period, but you started to see real spread, if you remember, in the first two weeks of March. Uh, if I remember correctly, first in Washington at that nursing home, then there was some in California, there was the New Rochelle. Seattle, New Rochelle, case. and the Orthodox. And area. so I think the issue was spread, and the cases just started to multiply. And I think that was it. And again, you know, we all remember the NBA for strange reasons, but I think that was another signal that this thing has gone beyond it. So you have colleges shutting down. It had hit us, I think, in force, and I think that's when we decided to, you know, use our tools to the maximum extent possible. And then, I mean, it's this is a parallel. This is a, a global health crisis, but also there was a parallel energy crisis where, after a few weeks, you couldn't give oil away, and this was a bona fide economic crisis. Small, medium business owners couldn't go to work; they didn't have recourse. This was specifically written out of their business interruption insurance. Nobody's, I think, Wimbledon bought pandemic insurance, so. The Fed, within its mandate of full employment and price stability, had to come in and kind of parachute in in emergency circumstances. Well, so you had uh, the normal tools that we use. Mm -hmm. uh, we took rates to zero. We did that uh, quite quickly, as you know. Uh, then there are the extraordinary tools. Markets had really frozen up and not, you know, opaque and obscure markets, not uh, markets where you could imagine, you know, some sort of a, a guilt by those people. The treasury market, the mortgage-backed markets, they had frozen up. And basically, you had a bunch of people, I think, in a significant flight to safety who were selling out of whatever they had and just wanted cash and treasuries. And so when the bid-ask spreads in the U.S. treasury market go to a level, we just said we had to do something to make those markets work. So we started buying treasuries and mortgage backs in significant proportions to try to help bring those markets back, which happened you know, over the next couple of weeks, I'd say. At least to a significant Could you explain extent. that for our listeners? I mean, in addition to taking rates up and down and the discount rate and, and some of the other traditional uh, tools in the, in the Fed's quiver, since the financial crisis of 08, the Fed has actually gone in and bought trillions of bonds, mortgage bonds, mortgage-backed securities. Is the goal there to try to do even more to keep interest rates subdued? So I'd say there have been three phases to it. Um, you know, back during Ben Bernanke's time, there was an effort called quantitative easing which was intended to you know, buy treasuries and mortgage backs, and I think uh, very much to uh, bring longer rates down. I think that was the spirit of it. Um, what we started doing in March of 2020 was not with that spirit. In fact, there were many, many of those purchases that were short time. It was actually to make markets function. The basic market for treasuries in this country was not functioning. And so it was about to make markets function. Now, why, why did we, it not function? I mean, when something goes wrong here or globally, people pile into U.S. treasuries. It's still the readout of safety. Buyers and sellers. So if you've got people who want to buy and the sellers don't want to sell, that's a market that doesn't function. Um, and there's uh, a big uh, amount of research that's being done into why exactly it didn't function. There are some people who would suggest you had you know banks that had liquidity thresholds that didn't want to take uh, anymore. You'd have others who would suggest it was just uh, it was people who are traders who are working from home and didn't have the access to the approvals to take that on. For whatever reason, it wasn't functioning. And, you know, we could have spent weeks to try to figure out why, but we knew it wasn't functioning, so we tried to do what we could. Then what happened is that Congress passed the CARES Act. Mm -hmm. And in the CARES Act, it gave us the authorization to open a few new facilities, including 
ones that, you know, would buy municipal bonds. Those are authorities that we don't normally have. And after Dodd-Frank, it was actually said you could only buy certain things with the approval of the Treasury Secretary, and then Congress uh, extended those. And so we started buying more of those assets. Those are, those facilities have all been closed at this point. Mm. But again, I talked to a double-A-rated defense contractor that couldn't roll over their commercial paper. So you had real issues with market functioning that aren't normal, that you would want to not happen again, but were happening in March 2020. I mean, short-term rates absolutely collapsed. I had to do a you know triple take to see you know where they were and everything. And so e- even then, people weren't going out and looking for quality and corporate yields or cash-rich companies. It was completely frozen. I think frozen is a very good word for it. People were frozen in place. Uh, people didn't want to you know buy other people's bonds. You didn't know what credit risk you were taking. And again, just remember the situation we were in. This was just eighteen months ago, March. The economy shut down. That was just a concept that none of us could process. And so you just didn't know where we were going to go from there. And so you could imagine, well, why people might not want to buy, take action to buy bonds in an institution where you didn't have confidence on what tomorrow was like. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond President Tom Barkin. We are at the Robin School at the University of Richmond for our first mostly in-person live show uh, in, in nearly two years. Um, I have to ask you in that, in that kind of moment, again, help me behind the scenes. Are you getting calls left and right? Because you're also, your, your province includes tremendous technology control for all of the Fed presidents. And you're, you're a technology expert and you worked for decades at McKinsey. I never appreciated, I didn't even know what Zoom was before this happened. I had, you know, Skype and FaceTime and yet overnight, as if in three days, the entire economy and our bandwidth and everything fairly seamlessly shifted to Zoom. Like, imagine if this had happened in 2003 in kind of the 56K modem era. What kinds of supports were given to technology or kind of the systemic nature of bandwidth or data warehouses? What was going on behind the scenes with that? Well, um, we also went home. We also went to work. By the way, we didn't go straight to Zoom because Zoom at the time in particular had some well-known security Mm. issues that we weren't comfortable with. Um, but you know, we did have our video platforms and we went and used those video platforms. I'd love to tell you it was beautiful. Every single call, no one ever talked while they were on mute. <laughs> Nobody ever had bandwidth issues, but you know, we had the same issues everyone else did. I'm really proud of our technology team because we did make the shift quickly. We did bring it up and running. And I think our team built a lot of credibility internally because they did do a significant, proactive, continuous improvement bandwidth effort to try to get access so that people could make it work. And as I compare to the corporate institutions that I talked to, ours was actually more seamless, you know, I'm pleased to say. But a lot of it had to do with the combination of getting more bandwidth uh, to people and and also, frankly, uh, educating users because most of the errors are user errors. Anywhere from, you know, your own, you know, local broadband isn't up to snuff to, you know, you're not using the machine the right way. And so, you know, we got there and we made it work. I think the phrase that everyone uses and the one that I would use too is we made it work. Mm. Uh, we haven't had an in-person FOMC meeting since wow. January of 2020 because we had to cancel the, the March one. So we've made it work, but I'm just not a believer that it works exactly as well. There's something about reading somebody's body language. There's something about walking out of a meeting and having a debrief of what did or didn't happen in the meeting. Uh, there's something about knowing if somebody's having a bad day that you just don't figure out on Zoom. So we've made it work, but that's where I put it. I put it, I don't know that it's working. I just say we've made it work. I'm thinking back to the turn of the century and the various shocks that the economy and the market and, and geopolitical things that have happened, everything from dot-com crashing and September 11th and the, the global financial crisis. I don't recall a period kind of in my investing adulthood when interest rates have been this low for so long. It feels like we've been at emergency policy, at least for the majority of the past two decades. Is that a question? Yeah. I mean, that's the whole uh, generation is growing up assuming that I guess. So rates went down zero. to zero. Rates went down to zero, I think, in 01. Uh, starting at about 03, they came up and came up to, I want to call in the four, four and a half percent range or about 2008. Mm. Then they went down to zero uh, in the great finan- global financial crisis and then came back up to roughly two and a half percent in 2018. And now they're back to, to zero. I remember my dad taking me, you know, uh, 
I grew up in Miami and we had uh, Savings of America. And he took me to the bank in 1981 to give me this passbook savings account. And he gave us a blender and 14%. And he would talk about inflation and these things. And we were talking about it when I was visiting him. It's, it's definitely a lifetime ago when you talk about that Federal Reserve and Volcker breaking the back of inflation, mm-hmm. which is, hasn't been something that's visited us for a while. Yeah. Well, rates are a lot lower than they used to be. And people ask me all the time, why? Are they lower? And I'd say, you know, the one thing you can just become crystal clear on is if you think inflation is going to be 14%, you're going to demand a higher rate. If you think inflation is going to be 2%, as it's been for, you know, basically the last 25 years, then you demand a lower rate. So I think the lack of inflation and the lack of uncertainty about inflation has brought rates down a ton. Uh, the other piece of the puzzle is the question of what's the core productive capacity of the U.S. economy? Um, we all remember the 90s very fondly. Population growth was higher in the 90s than it is today. Productivity growth was higher in the 90s than it is today. So if you think, you know, the analogy I like is a car when you don't have your foot on the gas. Just how fast is that car going to go when your foot's not on the gas? How fast is the economy going to go when your foot's not on the gas? Mm-hmm. And I just think in our economy and the global economy, that's a slower number than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Both of those have brought interest rates down. Well, the corollary on that is, is what about savers? I mean, if you were on your best behavior, you didn't beat the subprime siren calls, you didn't partake in, you know, Y2K tech fever or Bitcoin crypto speculation right now, you really haven't been vindicated by keeping your money in a, a bank account. It seems like I, I always worry that that's a forgotten constituency. And I'm a big saver. And so I believe in that. I, I will say as long as inflation's controlled, savers have done fine. Your 14% memory of the late 70s is offset by a very significant inflation in the late 70s. And I'd say, you know, while rates have been low over the last several years, if you go to 2018, if you'd had a money market account, you'd have gotten 2%. In 2018, inflation was basically 1.9%. They gave me a toaster 40 years ago. Well, (laughs) in a VCR probably. In a VCR, yeah. a A lot of things you don't use anymore. But I think, you know, the risk, of course, is that you have low rates and high inflation. That's, of course, what you want to try to avoid. Explain, can you please unpack and define inflation for me? And I'm not being coy because I feel like if I talk to mom and pop and family and small biz, they definitely feel inflation. But the Labor Department and the Fed and various economists break it out and, and split various hairs. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, I, and I think there is a lot of confusion about it. Businesses think of inflation as increased costs. We had inflation all over the place. If you talk to a business, that's because their costs are going up. We're actually looking at inflation in terms of prices, right? So there's prices and there's costs. And if prices don't get passed through, then that's not inflation at consumer. Uh, most consumers actually, when they think about inflation, think about food and energy, right? But when you look at core metrics of inflation that take out the volatile figures, they take out food and energy. And so core inflation isn't the same as, you know, food and energy. But the biggest confusion right now is, I'll call it the difference between a one-time price increase and persistent price increases. And so there's no doubt this year that we've had a one-time price increase. Prices have increased this year. Okay, and so that is inflation. That is inflationary. But when people say, we're not yet sure that we've moved to inflationary regime, they're saying, I'm not just sure that inflation is going to persist year after year after year. And so the question that a lot of people, very much myself, are asking is, is this year's inflation, which you all know is being driven disproportionately by supply chain problems and return to normal and the fact that cars can't get chips and those kind of things, is that going to persist? I think that is the question that we're charged with trying to handle and which we're absolutely trying to investigate. So is capital I inflation kind of the Paul Volcker, you know, rest in peace, variety that he sought to break the back of when you're seeing price increases passed down and people going and asking their bosses for raises and then just vicious cycle back and forth. Yeah, that that was the 70s. And remember what we had in the 70s. You had the Great Society spending. You had the Vietnam War spending. You had uh, the U.S. leaving the gold standard. You had OPEC. Hmm. You had wage and price controls that ended up you know, creating a big bow wave of inflation. And all that was in an environment where you had significant part of the economy was union dominated and had long-term multi-year pattern bargaining arrangements. And actually a big part of the economy was regulated. 
And so prices actually also indexed to CPI. Mm. Airlines, trucking, railroads, they were all regulated in the 70s. And so you had huge parts of the economy that were, I'll call it, indexed. And you had these pressures that came on that drove it. A lot of that is what unlocked the ever-spiraling inflation of the 70s. So does that potentially hit a tripwire now? We're going to talk about the great resignation and this vexing problem for all manner of workers. We can't employers. We can't hire anyone. I can beg them. I can give them gift cards. I can give them a vacation. You can walk on Grove Avenue. Taste Unlimited is offering $20 an hour. Please just show up. Hire your friends. Have you tried a toaster? (laughs) I haven't tried a toaster. One of those budgets. Does it then hit the capital I inflation tripwire when the price increases are passed in what you see, two or three cycles of hikes and then the Fed's realizing, wow, we need to kind of shut down the economy so these raises don't happen in mass? Well, we'll have to see how it plays out. But what's happened so far is, you know, our economy has been beset by a set of unpredictable variables at levels that are hard to remember in our experience, right? COVID up, down, up, down. Stimulus up and then up and then another set of stimulus and maybe, you know, more to come. A vaccine that we didn't know if it would work and then we couldn't roll it out and then it worked and then not everyone took it. Now we've got a Delta you know, variant. It's just been shock after shock after shock. And in that context, firms have really struggled to try to do production planning. And so everybody's short, whether, you know, you remember the toilet paper you mentioned at the beginning, uh, all the way to, you know, we talk about cars uh, today. So supplies are short. Uh, Demand is elevated in large part, influenced by some of the stimulus uh, we're talking about. And the workforce is short, in part, you know, this is a tough time to try to go to work if your kids are going to get sent home from school, in part, perhaps because of these benefits uh, and stimulus, but in part also, some people just don't want to take the risk of getting COVID. And so your long demand, your short supply, businesses are not investing even to build more supply because who knows what the future looks like. And that's what's driving prices up. And if you go into the summer, 75% of it, I'd say easily has been attributable to new, new cars, used cars, rental cars all of which are affected by this chip shortage, a return to normal and travel and hotels and restaurants and entertainments, both of which, all of which dropped significantly in 2020 and are coming back up in 2021. And so it's hard to imagine that all that is going to affect the future. Now you get to today and people like me who were hoping, expecting that with the fall, with COVID being down, with kids back in school, with excess enhanced unemployment behind us, You'd have more people back in the workforce are stopping and asking the question, holy cow, how long is it going to take for the 5 million workers on the sidelines to get back in the workforce? So work quickly, course? how are those workers making ends meet if enhanced unemployment, extraordinary benefits, every, you've, you've eaten off the yoke, the extraordinary one-time things of 2020 and 2021. You've got to go back to work. There's still a lot of excess uh, savings in people's mm-hmm. pockets, including people you know in the bottom half of the income spectrum. And part of that has been unemployment payments or stimulus checks. But part of that has been that none of us have spent over the last 18 months the way we were on a path to spend beforehand because restaurants weren't open or bars weren't open or we canceled a trip. And so people do have some amount of money in their pocket. That's the first thing. The second thing, it sounds trite, but this whole conversation about reassessing your life, the the segment that is down the most is working class parents of kids under 10. And you can imagine that a lot of them are dual career couples and, you know, scraping to get by. And it costs some amount of money to go to work. And if you think your kid's going to get sent home or you don't know if someone's going to get sent home, they may be making the choice to go on one income or make a little money on the side or, you know, just force all some spending for a while. I think all those things are happening. Whether they last or not is the big question we've got in front of us because we are still 5 million workers down from where we were just 18 months ago. But the question of how many of them come back is, I think, the key to whether we unlock the room in the labor market to help avoid wages going up the way you were describing. Well, I have to ask you about real estate prices, residential real estate especially. Are you surprised at how voracious this this rally has been? I mean, it's like we completely forgot about subprime and the great collapse of 08 and 09, and, and it's almost kind of a fetish. Everybody's adding, everybody's building. Uh, places are getting bid up before they're even listed. 
Well, again, if you come out of the Great, uh, the great Recession, it's now 2010. First thing you had is developers weren't really building that many houses. Banks were really financing that many developers. And so supply didn't grow that significantly. That was okay because demand didn't grow either. And a whole generation of millennials decided they were going to wait later to get married, have kids, and wait later to buy a house. And so that kind of worked. The market got a little more heated in the last couple of years before the pandemic. But what happened in a pandemic is, well, I mean, there's no better way to understand the flaws of your house than to live in it 24 Mm. hours a day. And a bunch of people realized that in spades. And so whether it was buying a second house or moving out of their house, you had demand elevate. In addition, you had a bunch of people living in studio apartments or small, you know, situations in big cities that decided they really wanted to move in a place that they could work. In addition, millennials are getting older. The oldest part of the millennial group is now 40. They're ready to buy houses. And so you saw a bunch of demand for housing. Oh, and by the way, mortgage rates were low. So you saw a bunch of demand for housing. At the same time, supply didn't grow the same way you would have expected, in part because construction costs are elevated. You can't find construction workers. And in part because people who normally would sell out of their houses and move into a nursing home, that wasn't happening in pandemic. So you had demand elevated, supply down. That's a prescription for prices going up. That's what's happened. Now, I think demand's going to continue because I do think this generation of millennials wants a house. And I do think with more and more people working remotely, you're going to want a little more house, a little better house. That's going to become a more important part of people's purchase basket, if you want to think about it that way. And on the supply side, it is really hard to find construction workers right now. There are houses going up, but I don't see the building in, you know, that you saw back in 04, 05, 06, and 07. I think it'll take a while for that to catch up. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and recommend our show to friends and family. If you are just joining us, we are talking to Tom Barkin, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. We are on stage for our first mostly in-person live show here at the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business. Tom, I got to ask you, um, on the flip side of the ledger, commercial real estate. Anyone you talk to about Manhattan, anyone you talk to about all of this billions and billions of square feet, going back to the office has been pushed out indefinitely. And I wonder when kind of the forbearance and the non-paying of leases and everything turns into potentially a systemic issue that banks have to suddenly write off the value of these loans. Okay, so you have to take commercial real estate apart. Industrial and warehouse space is booming. booming. Yeah, Everybody's distribution centers, you know, all the rest of that stuff. Multifamily still seems to be doing fine, particularly outside of the 10 biggest cities in the country. You're talking about, uh, and, and then retail. Obviously, if you're next to a Home Depot or a Walmart, that retail space is doing fine. If you're talking downtown retail, that space is struggling. And small retail is going to catch as catch can. Malls are obviously struggling. Mm-hmm. When you get to office space, we'll see. And that's what I put it. I mean, the office space is built. I don't think there's a ton of new office space coming on. I think that office space will be occupied. The question is at what price, right? And you're already seeing, I've talked to folks in a lot of small to medium towns saying they can't get any office space because people who've been working from home do need a space to go. And so they're selling small parts of the office space to people who want, I'll call it home offices outside of the home. The downtown, for sure, every big employer, and we are too, is reevaluating what percentage of people you want in the office or out of the office. Workers are evaluating the same thing. You're going to have, you know, organizations using less space. Uh, and so I do think that downtown commercial real estate is going to be challenged from a rent, you know, and price standpoint. But the question of any kind of systemic issue comes down to the question of how levered is that? Who owns it? Right. I can tell you, we've been through, you know, with the banks, a pretty significant stress testing exercise over the last two or three years. And they're pretty strong in terms of capital. And we've put pretty, you know, negative assumptions on commercial real estate. And they've withstood those. So doomsday lockdown type scenarios where, I mean, people start considering if I have 40% of my workers coming in and staggering, why should I pay the full freight for this square footage? I need to renegotiate. I mean, that's kind of a soft default. Oh, no, no. You know, will there be people who will default on commercial real estate? Sure. Will there be people who move out of their building and leave it to somebody else? Sure. You know, the nature of these things is you have an obligation for 10 or 15 years. Right. And so... It'll take a while for that to come 
the case, or you put a particular property into bankruptcy. Those are going to happen. Economy is going to adjust. I mean, that's creative destruction. I thought your question was more about, so yeah, we have to worry, the about, banks, the banking worry about banks. Yeah, you have to worry about banks. Yeah, system. And as best as I can tell, and we've certainly done this in the stress test, the banks are well capitalized against that particular issue. Are people starting to talk to you parenthetically? And I know my co-star is your neighbor right there on the on the river about maybe we're going to have to rethink Midtown Manhattan and downtown Richmond, the high rises. Maybe they're going to have to become residential or more mixed use mm-hmm. if this persists. Well, if you go down Main Street here, it's actually already got a lot of residential mm-hmm. uses here. When we moved to town, we actually thought about moving to downtown and mm-hmm. buying a buying a condo there. And it wouldn't surprise me at all. And in fact, as you know, large parts of Manhattan are in fact condoized. Mm-hmm. And so that that's a certainly a conceivable use of the building. Like I said, the buildings are built. Many of them are very attractive. They'll be uses for them. It's just a question of what the rent's going to be. I have to ask you, Tom, the investment rules of, of the Federal Reserve Bank presidents is very much in the news, what with the, the resignations at the Dallas Fed and the Boston Fed. What can you tell us about that? What are your thoughts on it? And are they in talks to change the, the personal investment standards of um, Fed presidents at the time? Well, we've had a set of rules which have served us well for a, a very long time. On the other hand, you know, the Fed has moved into, we talked about commercial bonds, for example, and unis, investing in other things in the last couple of years with new authorities. It's probably a ripe time to take a look at what our rules are. And so the Board of Governors has launched a new objective review. I'm sure we'll come up with things we can do differently and better, and we will. If you know me, I love to pose these existential economic type questions. I've always asked, what is normal? Is there a year that you could tell me in your career as a CFO is a consultant, everything else you've done, law school, a time in history where there wasn't an exogenous shock, rates weren't at emergency levels, we weren't breaking the back of inflation, we weren't feeling an oil crisis or war, that it's kind of an equilibrium year to look back on and say, that's when normalcy happened. No, of course not. But that's why my job's fun. I mean, I, my, you know, I'm supposed to be here helping steward the economy. If we were in some boring year, is you there know, a boring year though? Is there is there a year well, where you I mean, can say twenty eighteen, here come tariffs, right? Uh twenty nineteen, there was a market reaction. I mean, every year there's something that happens. And by the way, the uncertainty in any given year is always massive. Whether that be a geopolitical set of events or what's happening in markets or uncertainty in the day. I mean, every year is different and interesting. So I don't think there's something where you just say, This is a baseline year. Now you can go back a hundred years and look back, I think, you know, 1911 was a pretty good year. I don't know. But I mean, you can always sort of do that with 2020. Isn't it false nostalgia when people go back? I think my, my, my family always does. I'll tell you back in the day, you know, totally. And it's actually kind of fun to go read back in some of those, you know, years. And you can remember because it's always talked about, you had the long-term capital management, right? uh, 98, that was an issue. You had a stock market crash in, you know, 1987, but. People mentioned the savings and loan crisis the other day to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. That was 1990 and 1991. And it's stunning to go on on YouTube and see Tom Brokaw talking about the savings and loan crisis. And it's just the tiniest blip in the crash of 87. But they were very real at the time. Massive. In 1999 with the Internet stuff. I mean, I think you can go through any year and come up with what makes it unique. And again, that is what's fun about what I do, which is the problem that you're trying to solve, which is how to best support the U.S. economy, is always changing. And changing in ways that are uncertain, and you really don't know how they're going to play out when they happen. What do you think about China's clout, for better or for worse? It's been 20 years since the ascension to the World Trade Organization. Uh, in some respects, it's taken a record number of people out of poverty, it's become a manufacturing and electronics colossus. But you have things happen like the South China Sea dispute with Taiwan right now. You have worries about a surveillance state. We have a chip shortage, but can you trust China's chips? It's just something that didn't come up when I was a kid. I mean, Japan came up and everything, and Japan has had three-decade torpor. But how do you see China playing out? Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, uh, somebody put it well. I really liked it. They said China is a customer and a collaborator and a competitor. I mean, China is all of those uh, things. And they're a superpower. They have their independent interests, and they're going to pursue them how they do. And, you know, you can imagine lots of different ways they go. I, I, um, I quite liked a book Graham Allison wrote called Destined for War, where he took 24 different times in the history of the world where a strong number two threatened a entrenched number one. And part of his point was that 20 of those 24 times they ended up in a war. Of course, four of the times they didn't. And I think three of those four were in this century. 
you know, U.S., Japan, uh, U.S., U.K. And I think part of the point I took out of it is we're in a different time of history. You know, war in this time means something fundamentally different than war meant when it was Athens and Sparta. And so, you know, maybe we're not destined to have that big thing. Maybe we're going to work it out. But I, even, I even trade wars, even the 2018 vintage thing you were talking about with Trump and, and Xi back and forth on this, it's not like you can really afford to, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face in that case, because if we suddenly slap all these restrictions on China, they need to keep people at work. We need our supply chain is inextricably linked to what's being shipped out there. Apple computers, all manner of hardware, apparel, everything is coming from China. So who on, on balance, I know it's a cosmic question, who has the leverage? I mean, you're t- dealing with the two largest economies in the world. We both need each other. And, you know, presumably and hopefully we'll find out a way to make that uh, work. But there's always a risk that the two of you jump off the waterfall together. You know what else keeps me up at night is business interruption insurance. You can't see my face. I'm trying to be sarcastic. But that's the thing where everybody, every restaurant person, every small biz person, every pet shop owner, every, I mean, movie theater chain and everything, there was litigation afterwards. I think one of the top restaurateurs of New York tried to sue his insurer to say, no, you will cover an event like this, you can't declare force majeure. Who in the world is going to price and provide pandemic insurance coming out of this? How? Probably nobody. I mean, by the way, it's hard to get hurricane insurance in Florida. I mean, flood insurance is going, yeah, that's the government. So, so um, there were people, you mentioned, you mentioned Wimbledon. There were people who had pandemic insurance. But the insurance companies now see pandemics as something as a more live risk. And they're going to exclude it as best they can as they tend to do. And part of why you do that is, of course, a pandemic is a global thing. I don't know how you diversify your risk out of a pandemic, right? The whole theory of insurance is diversification of risk. If it happens everywhere, what do you, what do you do with it? So they're going to write it out. Now, just like with hurricanes, the state of Florida put in place an insurance program funded by the state to support Florida households and businesses against hurricanes. And so that's, you know, the state could step up to do something. I don't know if it will or not, but that's one of the options. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Tom Barkin, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. He came to Richmond in 2018 after decades at McKinsey, senior partner and CFO. Uh, Tell me about your district. Tell me what I need to know. I'm thinking Richmond Fed and that gorgeous building on the river. Apparently, there's trivia that it's all subterranean and there's even more square footage beneath it than what you see above it. But what did you do? You parachuted in and learned... Richmond, North Carolina, most of West Virginia. So we've got um, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. pretty unique. Uh, we've got, and, you know, the surrounding suburbs, that's one economy. We have Baltimore, which is a little different than the rest of the district and really more like a mid-Atlantic, northeastern economy. We have seven or eight thriving New South cities, uh, Charlotte, Columbia, Greenville, Richmond. Uh, and then we've got Raleigh. And then we've got a ton of small towns. And, you know, our mandate stable prices and maximum employment. And so I tried hard to say, okay, where are the gaps in employment? And interestingly, the small towns in our district, employment to population, prime age, 11 points lower than the cities in our district. And so we've, you know, in Richmond, we've done a lot of work, including a conference we held last week virtually, uh, to try to research and understand what's happening in these small towns and why is their performance less and what can be done about it. And it's interesting, you know, educational outcomes are not as strong in those small towns. Connection to jobs is a big issue. And most of them spend time trying to recruit one big employer. But I think the notion of training up your workforce and getting them connected to jobs is a huge potential opportunity. Isolation is a big issue. They don't have hospitals. They don't have banks. They don't have anchor institutions. They don't have role models. And so people don't, you know, find a way out. And broadband, of course, is a classic example of of that isolation. And then you have real issues, you know, of participation in these places. You see people just not getting in it for health and, and health reasons as well. And so, gosh, I probably every other week spend three days. I was, you know, in one of these small towns and we're learning a ton of stuff. We're learning about how people are getting funding in creative ways. We're learning how people work regionally uh, together to do it. There's a whole set of issues around how do you build a sense of place, a sense that people would want to come back to, that your kids would want to, you know, live in. And I think there's a lot about how do you build capacity to attract funding. In some of this latest stimulus package, there is a boatload of funding 
that is could potentially go out to these places. Broadband is a great example. But you have to be ready to accept the funding. And that means you have to have an organization or a leader that is credible with the people who allocate funding and, frankly, can put together grant writing capabilities so that people can actually get access to it. The folks who get the funding out of all this stuff are grant writing machines. And I think we need a lot more small towns that are able to access this money so they can deliver it in their communities, so they can build something out and make things better for them. You know, talking about funding coming down the pike, whether it's $1 trillion, $2 trillion, $3.5 trillion, there's certainly an extraordinary redefining of infrastructures, actual hard infrastructure, high-speed rail, roads, bridges, repairing rust, and then the human infrastructure you're seeing coming out of the White House. What kinds of questions are you getting about this? Because we, we focus a lot on monetary policy, but there's still fiscal policy potentially coming down the pike. Well, so the classic question you get in the communities is, can we afford it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the question I'm asking is, are we going to do a set of things that get more workers into the workforce? Or are we going to do a set of things that constrain the workforce? And yeah, I don't know what's in these bills in the end, and so we'll see. On the infrastructure side, America clearly needs infrastructure. We're actually also short infrastructure workers. So what are we going to do to get more people into certificate programs? You know, are we going to pair it with a, let's say, make Pell Grants available mm. for those programs so that you can get more people into the workforce in these infrastructure jobs so that you can actually do the projects that are out there? I am worried about uh, the 5 billion people we talked about out of the workforce. How do we get more parents into the workforce? That's an important issue. Should we do some of the things that Japan has done to get more 55 and older back into the workforce? That's an important issue. And so I think there are things we could do that would bring people in, but I, I don't know. In your mind's eye, are there ways that this could kind of be surgically spent? There are certain levers that you could pull that it's not just the blunt, you know, throwing cash out, that it will specifically seek out and embolden and empower people who have been underrepresented or underutilized labor capacity. Well, if you gave me the ability to write all the bills, of course I would do it better in my own mind. But, you know, we have a political process, and so they'll write the bills. It's not it's not my job to do it. Is there it's part of you that maybe pines for universal community college education? Or if you talked about child care backstops right now, if you're a, a, a server, a single mother who is not convinced that school can take the kid back, can't afford child care, has to be in this kind of Zoom schooling purgatory, but you want to be out there, you want to be productive, there's no other backstop for you. There's no kind of way out of this. I think we have to think carefully about these. And again, I like to look at other countries. Um, women's participation in the workforce in this country peaked in 2000. Wow. And right now it's about four points below where it was in 2000. And that's almost all working class women. Canada's is up five points from 2000. And that up is almost all in working class women. So that's a nine point gap. And I'd like to know what is Canada doing to get women in the workforce that we're not doing? And I think it is in and around leave policies, child care, flexible arrangements, all those kind of things. Japan, uh, I believe the number is that their 55 and up workforce participation is 13 points higher than ours. Wow. Theirs is 70, ours is 57. Is that because people just don't want to leave the workforce there? It's a cultural shame thing? You know, while it might be, I think it has a lot more to do with job design and incentives for people to work longer. By the way, built out of necessity because their, their workforce is shrinking. Well, ours still has very modest growth. And so, you know, those are the kind of things I think that are very interesting. But we have to learn a lot about what works in this economy, not just their economies. Tom, I have a question from Gary. The inevitable question about asset bonus is, uh, you know, if you're out there flooding the plane with money and and, uh, asset purchases and everything, it's going to goose capital. It's going to goose the stock market, real estate, crypto. I didn't even get into that. But do you worry about maybe the overshoot alongside? What we saw in 2000, what we saw in, in you know, subprime, Fed have to worry about asset bubbles and preempting asset bubbles and fighting them. Well, I do worry about asset bubbles. I, I try to watch valuations carefully. Of course, it's hard to know, you know, when you're in one. The other part that's important is um, they have the most significant impact if they're associated with elevated leverage. And so we do oversee the banks. That gives us an opportunity to inspect the leverage in the banking system. And as I said earlier with the stress test, that's a place we've spent a lot of time trying to trying to understand. The question of how to run monetary policy and think about asset bubbles at the same time is a very complicated question, probably best described by, is it a good idea to shut down the economy early 
so that you can lower the price of assets. If you shut down the economy early, some people who would otherwise get employed does don't get employed. Does it have to be that binary, though? Shut no, it down it doesn't and have swell to. it? Are there other but tools? But that's how you that's how you have to think about the tools. And so, um, Are there other tools we don't know about that limit well, margin? or regulatory tools are the ones that are better at asset bubble. I mean, yeah, that, that's the way to think about it. I mean, if you think about the 01 asset bubble, and whether it was Enron or Global Crossing, any of those companies, I mean, the SEC later did a whole bunch of changes to make sure they were reporting their earnings in the right way. That's a different tool than just using monetary policy. And, you know, we have Thanksgiving coming up, and I don't know, I, I hope you can have in-person dinners and be reunited with your daughter and your family everywhere. Some uncle or cousin is inevitably going to bring up crypto and Bitcoin. And I still feel life in me for, you know, I've been following it now for a decade. I don't know how to explain the purpose, the usefulness, the MO, the need in 30 seconds or less. Can you? I think my uncle probably wants investment advice, and I don't have any to give, so I'm not going to help him out with that. As I've talked to people about crypto, I've heard two different, I'll call it business propositions. One is as an uncorrelated alternative asset class, and the second is as a currency. As an uncorrelated asset class, sure, it certainly seems to have value today. You know, all assets are worth what someone else will pay for it. And so there are other people out there willing to pay for it. You could argue whether it's actually uncorrelated with the stock market or not. It feels somewhat highly correlated, but okay, it's a, it's an asset class. The challenge with the asset class is um, when others decide they don't really value it, what do you have? And so you could compare it to art or fine or gold. And you know, you may or may not believe that the fine art I've bought has value. And if you don't buy it from me, I might just put it on the wall. Right. And there are other uses I can come up with gold too. I just don't know what I'm going to do with Bitcoin. But on a currency, uh, you know, there are countries, uh, El Salvador has announced it, Argentina, Turkey, where the home currency is really not uh, very credible. And so I'm giving you an alternative currency. That's a, that's a play. In the U.S., our currency is quite credible. And we have a digital currency. It's called the U.S. dollar. I mean, I have $100 in my pocket and I have a lot more in the bank and I spend it digitally and I pay my bills digitally. And so, you know, you have to then decide what the use case is for a U.S. digital currency beyond the digital currency we already have. And we're working on a, a paper on the possible use cases on that. And I'm not, it's certainly not the Chinese version where they want to track every transaction. I don't think that's a U.S. play, but, you know, there are other things that are put forward. And, you know, you took the other question right off my mind is I don't carry cash anywhere. I take uh, money out of the bank every month to get a haircut and uh, for tips here and there, but I have the credit cards on the back of my phone. It's a great recipe for identity theft or something, but I use Apple Pay. Whatever happened to cash? What's it good for? I actually, does anyone want to shed a tear for a pickpocket in New York or even doorman? They used to say, you know, I'll pay for the cab from lower Manhattan and the change that I get, I'll tip the doorman. They're just it, it, especially last year when there was a coin shortage and nobody, people wanted contactless options. Um, one interesting thing is the amount of cash in circulation is actually up wow. year over year, um, which is surprising because the amount of cash we're processing is not up. I suspect that's because if you're in Turkey or Argentina and you can have some U.S. dollars, that's something you would you know very much like. But but I agree with you. I think we are living in a digital world, and whether it's Venmo or uh, or your bank account, or Zelle, there's lots of different ways to, to pay people other than cash. Tom Bargain, in the few minutes we have left with you, I want to take you back to the year 2011. We're still coming out of the, the torpor and the shock of uh, the subprime crisis. You have Greece and the pigs and other countries just you know failing, and there's this concern that this is a lot worse than it is. And the United States actually had its credit rated downgraded in August of 2001. And I've looked at the U.S. debt since it's performed marvelously. I've looked at U.S. stock markets. They've multiplied in value. I've looked at the United States debt outstanding. It's kind of like that didn't happen. It's one of those tiny things you look back on that was momentous and, and embarrassing at the time. But if we're being called profligate and we're playing chicken with the debt ceiling and everything, it's kind of certainly happening again right now. Well, I think there are a couple things you're getting at there. Um, the debt of this country has increased significantly uh, since 2011. But the price we're being asked to pay for it, which is not something driven by the Fed, I'm talking 10 or 30 year treasury things, has not risen, you know, in the way that you might have otherwise expected. And I think that is because those who invest in the debt still believe this is the best asset uh, you can hold. You know, the, the long term U.S. Treasury is secure, rule of law, you know, strong currency, uh, responsible Fed, you know, all the rest of that stuff. 
that's not an entitlement. That's something we've earned. And I think it's something we've got to continue to earn. And so that does make the case that we ought to be thinking carefully now that we're almost through this crisis on how we responsibly bring our fiscal situation back in line. I think the uh, managing this debt ceiling situation well would be one good way to do that. And, you know, I'm encouraged that we didn't do anything uh, this month. I noted it's just a couple months away. I think everybody that I listen to suggests you don't want to go anywhere close to suggesting you're going to default on your debt. And so I'm hopeful we can get to the other side of this. Why does anyone even feel comfortable playing chicken with that? It seems, uh, I don't know. <laughs> In closing, Tom Barkin, tell us what's on your immediate radar. One thing that you think is being short shrifted in the press right now that you wish would get more attention. Maybe it's an essay that you wrote, a, a pet project, a hobby. Well, the, uh, I have a lot of great essays, which I should probably promote right now on richmond.org if you're interested. But, um, I, the thing I'm really interested in is this question of what is really going on with the labor market. I mean, I, I'm in a business where I need to test my hypotheses every day to make sure I'm not, I'm not off, off base somewhere. And I really did think we would see stronger job growth in the last two or three months than we've seen. Because as I said earlier, you know, COVID being behind us, unemployment benefits ceasing, uh, kids back in school. I really did think uh, we'd see it. We haven't seen it. So, uh, why not? Is it something uh, temporal, which relates to the fact that the virus is back up, or, you know, maybe new benefits that are out there? Or is it something that's actually more fundamental? And that's where I'm doing my research right now is this question of, you know, these five million people, what will it take to get them back in the labor market? What do we need to do and why are they not back? Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin, needless to say, you are always welcome on this show. Thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks to producer Claire Morgan, the facilities and AV teams at the University of Richmond Robbins School, Dean Mickey Quinones, Andy Miner, Courtney Annis, Jim Strader, and Nina Mantilla at the Richmond Fed. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, Apple, and all fine podcatchers everywhere. You can catch us on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and Washington, D.C., WPVM down in Asheville, North Carolina, even out west on KPPQ in Ventura, California. Get in touch to have us on your ear. And stay tuned for more live shows here at the U of R, fingers crossed. Full disclosure, inflation, recession, stagflation, my guarantee to you, the interest rate in this program will always be high. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>